Well, this is our first Sunday of Advent. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you grew up in a church that celebrated Advent? I didn't really come across Advent until I was already in ministry for 10 or 15 years. I'd certainly heard about it, but it sounded like some stodgy old, old thing where we had to give up fish or something. I didn't know, you know. Just sounded like something that got in the way of all the revelry. You know, there's a stage in your life as a young person where you think that you've got the world figured out. But there's an important dynamic to life, but especially to our relationship with God, that is about mystery. In some ways, the free church tradition works against that. Our goal can be to make Jesus so relevant that it sounds more like that old 60s song, Put Your Hand in the Hand of the Man Who Stilled the Water. Put your hand in the hand. Everyone, take a look at yourself. There's a beautiful truth that Jesus became man and dwelt among us. We beheld him. But to remove the mystery of that is to remove God. It was really in my 30s, already pastoring a Baptist church, that many in our circles were were coming to this ancient celebration as a way of coming up against the commercialization of this season and recapturing the mystery, the need to be ready, but not ready in terms of shopping lists and house projects for guests that are coming to spend the night and final exams and all those things that we think of about this time of year that we just have to get through. And if we can just make it to Christmas Eve and make sure the, the turkey's in the oven, we're pretty happy. We mean readiness to welcome Jesus. The journey will always celebrate the Advent season, not a way of joining in on the premature commercialization of the season, but a way to come against it, to slow ourselves down, and to ready our spirits for what God wants to do in a season where we remember what it was like to be longing for the coming of Jesus in our lives. I've mentioned our uh, traveling as a family. And one of those camping trips we took was to Mammoth Caves. Anybody ever been out there? And one of the big tours that we did, we ended up down about 240 feet below the Earth's surface in a very large chamber. And the guides, the tour guides, had us all sit down. And then they said, we're going to turn the lights off. So if you want to hold on to something, especially your kids, why don't you go ahead and do that? And so we all did. And then they turned the lights off. It was a blackness that you could touch. I mean, there was no place where light could drift down that far below the surface. And I thought about miners who had been trapped without power and that incredible darkness and uh, trying to survive and have any hope as people struggled to get down to them. I remember sitting there and I did this to my face. Couldn't see a thing. And then the lead ranger lit one solitary light, and it lit the entire room. I imagine ourselves trapped down there, and if a light like that came, it would probably have been the most beautiful light we had ever seen in our entire lives. There is something about that experience that is our faith journey. Jesus' coming is to be seen as the light of the world. In him was life. That life was the light of men. Candles are an important part of this season of waiting because they do remind us not only of the light that would come, but of the darkness that precedes the light. If you have your Bibles, just turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. 
This is one of the more famous messianic passages, prophetic passages about the promise of Jesus in the Old Testament. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. It's always interesting how the man-made breaks in the Bible happen at some of the oddest moments. When Isaiah wrote this, he didn't have chapter and verse put in. You understand that, right? In order to help us study these passages, experts broke the Bible down into workable segments, chapters and verse. And, and I always wonder why they start a chapter with the word, nevertheless, or therefore. This is one of those passages. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. And this is probably a more familiar passage to you. The people walking in darkness. I've seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Words that we still hear in Handel's Messiah and in readings all over the Christian world during this time of year still mean a great deal to us now as we look back and see 2,000 years ago the fulfillment of these words that were written centuries before their fulfillment in Christ. Next week, we're going to take a look at these various titles of the child that would be born. But today, we just want to focus on this thought, this picture of the people walking in darkness and seeing a great light. In some ways, the story I began with might be what we might picture in this setting. People just caught in this condition of darkness, victims of a, a broken world waiting for someone to come and save them. And that would certainly be an appropriate idea as we wait for the, the coming of the light. But I think an important thing for us to look at here is that the darkness that Isaiah is speaking of is not a condition that the people of Israel just found themselves victims of. The darkness is of their making. In the beginning of the chapter, we see this nevertheless, and if we were to go back and read about Isaiah's uh, prophecies, he's predicting that because of Israel's turning away from God, they have uh, once again turned towards more convenient deities and more selfish priorities and have turned away from the God who delivered them from Egypt and said, I I am the Lord your God. have no other gods before me. And, And as God promised would happen, they had, in that turning from him, experienced a great season of oppression. And Isaiah says, it's coming. You're you're going to experience judgment. 
But then he goes on and says, eventually, once God has brought this upon you and humbled you again, there will be a restoration. And that's what Isaiah is speaking of here. That's why he says, nevertheless, eventually, there will be a time when there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And then he says, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun. In other words, who brought the darkness? God did. God brought the darkness. He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will again honor Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is a a fascinating look at God's reaction to his own people before the cross, before the coming of Christ. And as the people drift away from him, God allowing that drifting to have its natural result in their life and them finding themselves in a very dark place, a humbling place. The darkness is of their making. And then he says, but I won't leave you in that place. There will be deliverance. In the past, I humbled you, but I will yet forgive you and restore you. And that's why he goes on and says in in verse 4, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. The, the story of Midian's defeat is the story of a biblical hero named Gideon. In the Bible, during the period of the Judges, in fact, you'll find his story in Judges 6 and 7. If we were to turn there today, you'd find that he wasn't really much of a hero to begin with. The Midians had come in because of Israel's sin. God had given Israel over to Midian, and Midian was like a racketeer. They came in and they made people pay for protection (laughs) from them. And so Israel had to hide things. And so we find Gideon taking a little bit of wheat on a threshing floor, a little bit that was left over from Midian coming in and taking the whole crop and trying to make it work so he could make a little piece of bread. So there he is in hiding. And the angel of the Lord appears and says, Hail, Valiant warrior. <laughs> Ain't no valiant warriors here. You must mean the, the, the grist mill over the other side of the valley. No, and God calls Gideon. Calls him to be the man that would bring victory over Midian. And what does he call him first to do? The first thing he has to do is to go and tear down the idols. His father was the head of the clan and of that region. And he said, I want you to go and I want you to tear down your father's idols because they're the issue. The reason why you're in darkness is because of those things that you're worshiping that are not me. And so valiant warrior as he is, he goes boldly up to the top of the hill in the darkness of the night. (laughs) And without anyone seeing, knocks down the altar to Baal, knocks down the pole to Asheroth, builds a new altar to God and lays a sacrificed animal on that altar. When the people discover it, they want to know who did it so they can kill him. Gideon's father says, you know, if, if Baal and Asheroth want to defend themselves, they're welcome to it. If they really are gods, let them kill this perpetrator. Of course, that doesn't happen. And that's just the beginning of Gideon calling out an army. 
a great army that would come and do battle against Midian, and then God needing to teach them such a lesson that he thins the army down. That's a whole nother story. But eventually, God uses a very small group of men coming against the, the horde of Midian, and in a powerful way that only God could do, brings victory over the Midianites. That's why Isaiah says, as in the same day of Midian's defeat, God will have shattered the yoke that burdens Israel. In other words, there is a way that God will restore and bring restoration and bring light once again. And it doesn't start with the victory. It starts with the tearing down of the idols. So when we think about Advent, an opportunity to recontextualize, to recapture, to realign our lives with the coming of the light of the world. And as we think about the darkness into which Christ came, let's be very careful not just to think of it as a dark society, a dark world. Because the darkness into which he wants to shed his life is the darkness of your and my hearts of our lives. And the same way we think about this coming of the promised one to bring salvation, we need to be mindful that in order for true freedom to align ourselves and prepare ourselves for this, there's a tearing down of the idols that has to happen in our lives. See, that's what Advent allows us to do. Because let's admit it, we are all idolaters at heart. When the Lord begins giving the great Decalogue for his children to live by, he really establishes the great rule when he says, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Everything else after that is really just details. And every sin that follows is a result of having other things besides God before us. And we can worship other gods, but we can also worship ourselves, our priorities, our dreams, our relationships. You see, we are born idolaters. So this image of preparing for the liberation, the coming of Christ by looking at our lives, looking at what we have put in the high places of honor in our lives that get in the way of our being open and receptive to God's coming. That's what Advent's for. It's for making paths straight. Let me jump forward just quickly to the New Testament. This would be John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. He, of course, was the forerunner, the one who was prophesied as the one coming in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. And what is he saying? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is the same idea in our lives of getting ready, getting prepared for the coming of the Lord. And what is he saying? The kingdom of God is near. And what are we called to do? We are called to be ready for it. Prepare the way. That's Advent. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's an interesting phrase. Make straight paths 
for him. You've certainly heard that before. Any of you ever wondered what that means? It's the welcoming. As we just sang in Psalm 24, the king of glory, lift up your gates, let the king of glory may come in. It's the welcoming of a great king into the city. And in preparation for him to come, it's the widening of the roads. It's the clearing of the obstacles. It's making a road out of a footpath, room for the great king to come. And that's what John the Baptist was crying out to those who were living in the moment of the advent of the Christ. Prepare the way, make straight the path, remove the obstacles, fill the pits in the road, make a path worthy for the entrance of a king. In the same way, the children of Israel looked forward to the coming of Messiah. We are also a people in waiting. Advent is not just about going back to that season before the first coming of Christ. We are also a people waiting for the coming of Christ. We live in expectancy of another Advent when Christ will come and gather us to himself, call his church and establish his kingdom. So, in essence, we're not simply in this season recapturing the first coming of Christ. We are tuning ourselves to what our life ought always to be, and that is in preparation for the return, the adventus of Jesus, but no longer as a child, but as coming king to reign. Peter speaks of that in 2 Peter chapter 3. We spoke about this in our teaching before our launch Sunday. You'll find some of those sermons in the back talking about the kingdom of God and uh, the return of Christ. And we're not a church that is going to try to focus on solving that puzzle. We want to be clear about the things that the Bible's clear about. And the Bible doesn't really give us a, a clear timeline. It's the reason why a lot of the prophetic literature is spoken in allegory and in symbolism. But where the Bible is clear about the coming of Christ, we want to be clear. And we want to be obedient. One thing is certain. The early church fully expected that Jesus, who said before he left, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done preparing a place, I will come and receive you to myself. And one thing is perfectly clear. The people that wrote these New Testament scriptures fully expected that that could happen in their lifetime. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting But you see an interesting impatience for the return of Christ, even in this first century of the church. And Peter is writing to try to keep people encouraged and hopeful about the coming of Christ. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. They were saying that even back then. A mere... 40 years after the events of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Where is this promise of his coming? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. 
By the same word, the present heavens and earth are preserved for judgment, being kept for the day. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. I've got to stop to tell you a story. You ever hear that little exchange of a prayer with God? You know, God, you know, what, what's, a, what's a day like for you? And he says, oh, it's like a thousand years. What's a, what's a, a million dollars like to you? Oh, it's like a penny. I says, Lord, could, could you give me a penny? And God said, wait a day. <laughs> Had to throw that in there. Okay. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And then he says this. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now, without teaching about all this stuff, about the the recreation, a new heaven and a new earth, the old will be judged and passed away, and a new heaven and a new earth will come. Peter says, make no mistake, that will happen. And then he asks this question, since all those things will happen, what kind of people ought you to be? That is the question that Advent allows us to entertain. Since the Lord will come, what kind of people ought you to be? And then he answers it, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. What a great privilege we have to enter into a season where we get to look at our own high places in our lives, the the places in our heart where the things most cherished are honored. And we get to look at them and we get to tear down those high places so that God once again reigns and rules in our life. We get to make the path straight in our lives. We get to once again set aside our lives as holy and ready for his coming. And so I invite you to to enter into this time. See it as a season of renewal in our lives. We're drifters spiritually. Line up ourselves and then life pulls us away. Life distracts us. God calls us back to himself to make paths straight. And that, that's a time of great celebration and hope. So I invite you to embrace that with us and, and welcome God into that work in your life. Let's just take a, a moment and pray together. I wonder if you could just sit silently now and just say, Lord, Lord Jesus, I want to make the path straight in my life in this season. I don't want to be so lost by the commercial and the traditions of Christmas that I lose out on the spiritual renewal and reawakening and requickening of my love for you in my life. I ask that you come and, and work in me. Shine your light in my dark places so that they can be cleaned and purged and be fit for you to come once again in joy and in forgiveness and in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.